Welcome to the British Army's Leadership Podcast, brought to you by the Centre for Army Leadership. This week's podcast is presented by SO2 Leadership, Major Ben Acton. In this week's episode, we are delighted to have Eddie Jones, the current head coach of England Rugby, on the show. Eddie is one of the most high-profile coaches in the world of rugby and has over two decades of experience coaching at the elite level. Formerly a successful teacher in his native Australia, Eddie transitioned to professional coaching in the late 90s. At the club level, he has coached all over the world, which includes spell in Japan, Australia and here in the UK. However, it is in the international game that Eddie is best known. In his first role as an international head coach, he led Australia to a World Cup final in 2003, narrowly losing to England. In 2007, he became a technical director for the South African Springbok side and was instrumental in their World Cup victory. In 2009, he became head coach of Japan, where he spearheaded a national transformation of the game and led them to one of the most historic underdog victories world rugby has ever seen, when they beat South Africa with a last second try in the 2015 World Cup. Later the same year, Eddie was appointed head coach of the England national side, having instant success by leading them to their first Grand Slam in 13 years. During his tenure with England, he has won three Six Nations Championships, two Triple Crowns, led the team to a joint world record 18-game winning streak, and in 2019, they reached the Rugby World Cup final, losing to South Africa. This has led him to being the most successful England coach in history for win percentages. A ferocious competitor, Eddie has a proven track record of leading high-performance teams. Hey, Eddie. A very warm welcome to the Centre for Army Leadership podcast. It's fantastic to have you on the show uh, and a huge thank you for taking the time out of your Six Nations schedule to come and talk to us today. As has become a bit of a tradition on the podcast, we like to get to know a bit more about the person we are talking to before we start to unpack their leadership. To that end, I think most of our listeners will be fairly familiar with you and your current role, but perhaps less so of a young Eddie Jones growing up in Australia. Would you mind telling us about your formative years and how did this period shape you as the leader you are today? Oh, well, first I'd just say it's a pleasure to be here. And then secondly, I was, I was lucky as a child growing up, had lovely parents, uh, tough parents. Uh, father was in the army, served in World War II, went to Vietnam. Um, yeah, I was a career soldier, so he moved around a lot. Um, Japanese mother so being half Japanese half Australian moving around a lot you had to you had to look after yourself sport was an avenue that I could excel in I was reasonably academic without being outstanding in Australian working class sport was everything so I learned how to play cricket by myself and my mother wouldn't let me play rugby league which was a sport at our school when I was young until 10 so I had to wait and I remember I used to have to play uh, house uh, football or soccer, as we called it in Australia, which was all the kids who couldn't make anything else. So that was, I always felt I was being held back because I was quite competitive. Um, and I was lucky. I, I grew up with uh, three Aboriginal boys called the Ella Brothers who all represented Australia. So I had a very fortunate uh, upbringing. Well, growing up alongside Australian rugby royalty and the Ella Brothers has clearly done you no harm and what many of our listeners may not know is that before you transitioned into coaching you actually had a really successful playing career yourself winning 12 caps for New South Wales and becoming a bit of an institution at Randwick Rugby Club which at the time were one of the best sides in Australia with this in mind 
How did the transition from playing to coaching happen? And when did you know that you were destined for the coaching world? Well, I never knew I wanted to be a coach. Uh, I always remember when I was about 14, my father was watching me at halftime. He said, son, at least pretend to listen to the coach. And the coaching back then in rugby wasn't great. But then I went to to Randwick and I was lucky enough to be coached by Bob Dwyer, who won the World Cup in 91 and had a very successful career. Um, but then in 90, when he became the Australian coach, he picked a, a bloke out of second grade ahead of me. who I was the first grade hooker and the New South Wales hooker, and he picked the second grade bloke to play for Australia. So... The writing was on the wall um, and I ended up playing that season, the last part of the season in second grade. And I had a fair bit to say and the, and the coach, I remember the coach who was a mate of mine, he said, uh, you talk a lot, you might as well coach the team. So I ended up, they allowed me to coach the team for the last six weeks, played and we won the premiership. And from that I decided, oh, well, when I finished playing and I played another couple of years, I'll have a go at coaching. I think most leaders would recognise that effective communication is at the very heart of good leadership. So it sounds like you had a really strong foundation to build upon. Again, some of our listeners may not be aware, but you were actually a school teacher prior to the game turning professional and your subsequent transition into coaching. Now, there has been a real theme in the last decade of former teachers dominating international rugby coaching. Your predecessor, Stuart Lancaster, Joe Schmitz, and of course, the great Graham Henry. So, how did your experience as a teacher? help you develop as a leader and a coach? I think there's not a lot of difference between teaching and coaching. Um, and if you're lucky enough to have learned teaching as I was at, at university, you got a little bit of a head start because you understood how to construct the lesson, which is in, in rugby, a training session. Um, you got to understand where to position yourself. You got to understand... Yeah, I, I was reading a teaching book this morning and they were talking about I, we, you. And it's such a, a simple teaching methodology. You know, you give some direct instructions, you tell the, the players or the, or, the, or the students where you're going to go. Then together you, you create some solutions and then you give the, give the problem completely to the players or the students to solve. Um, and so those little those little bits and pieces, and yeah, what I'm thinking with our coaches now is I'm going to put them on a teaching course post the Six Nations because a lot of them have just come through as ex players, and and they've missed out on that methodology of 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 teaching how to create the maximum learning environment. And I'm sure it's the same in the army. You know, the further you get up, the, the more you've got to teach you your uh, subordinates, what they've got to do. It's really interesting you speak about the requirement for your coaches to have those key skills and experiences. It draws out the point that young coaches that are coming through the system now won't necessarily have benefited from another career such as teaching. All they would have potentially experienced is coaching professionally or perhaps transitioning from playing to coaching. Is there then a danger, and by the sounds of it, you've already highlighted that there is an issue, are professional coaches becoming a bit narrow? And how do they individually gain that broader experience? Uh, well, I see it in the schools now um, uh, where ex-players are being employed to be coach rugby at, at schools, but they don't coach rugby. What, what they do is coach a team to get organised. And it's I see players coming through now 
that they understand the organisation of the game, but they're, they're missing out on the nuances of the game. So I think it's a it's a it's a bit of an urgent thing in in terms of our our coaching that we get young coaches who are coming through uh, to do teaching programs. Um, they don't have to become teachers, but they need to understand the methodology of teaching, and therefore, particularly kids at a young age are being taught skills, not being taught the organisation of the game. May I turn now to the Eddie Jones of today? Now you are renowned for driving high standards. And you've been described as having an unrelenting work ethic, allegedly never sleeping. Now, are these the foundations to your leadership philosophy? What defines Eddie Jones as a leader? Well, I think uh, the main thing, it's not about number of hours you work or how hard you work. It's your focus. I think that's the thing that separates people who are able to lead for a sustainable period of time and don't. Because once you get any sort of success or failure, and they, and they both come generally together. You know, unfortunately, failure usually follows success or failures before success. Um, you know, they're almost twins. That you can lose focus. Uh, you can use fo- focus while you're doing it. And I think the, the most important thing is to have a really good focus. Why are you doing the job? Uh, what do you enjoy about it? What are you hoping to achieve? And then make sure you're the most enthusiastic person in the room. Um, because as we know, enthusiasm breeds enthusiasm. Uh, it's contagious. And then you've got to have the knowledge of your, your subject matter. So you've got, to, you've got to be a master of your craft. You've got to know, you, got to know in, in, in our instance, our sport, or if it's mathematics or if it's uh, field evasion, you've got to know everything about that, about that area. Absolutely, Eddie. Being professionally competent and understanding our profession is at the very heart of the Army Leadership Doctrine. May we turn to your current role as England head coach? Now, you are always the first to say when you feel that you haven't prepared the team well, or perhaps when you felt that you've made a wrong decision. As a leader, how important is this honesty and accountability? Well, I think the honesty is the, the number one thing. I think, yeah, if you want to build trust, and we know that if you've got a relationship where there is trust, you're more likely to get more out of that person and you're more likely to get more out of that person when they're under pressure. And, and that's the key thing. And you build trust by, by being honest. And what's honest? If you say you're going to do something, you do it. So that, that to me is almost a non-negotiable, um, that you've got, to, you've got to take that, you've got to build that trust and then you've got to keep that trust. And the only way you do that is, is be as honest as you can. We couldn't agree more. Trust and honesty are fundamental to any successful team. If we could stay on honesty and perhaps broaden it a little into communication, you've developed a bit of a reputation with the media being able to skillfully divert their attention onto you rather than perhaps focusing on the team. How important is it for a leader to protect their people by taking away external pressures, in this case, the media? Oh, I don't know how I do it skillfully, but uh, again, I think you just got to know as a leader whether your team needs pressure or your team needs the pressure taken off. You know, there's almost like you've got the team there and you're either got to support the team, which is taking pressure off, or you've got to challenge the team to be better. You know, as soon as they get a little bit comfortable, then you've got to put more pressure on and, and challenge the team. So it's that balancing act and, and that's where... Yeah, you hear the great coaches like Sir Alex Ferguson talk about 
how important observation is because observation gives you the data, gives you the evidence on what, on what the players need individually or what the group needs, whether it needs some more pressure or needs pressure taken away from them. And that balance is absolutely critical. People really do need pressure to fulfil their potential, but apply too much and it can have a real corrosive effect. Now, if I could turn to our army leadership model for a second, which is built around John Adair's action-centred leadership theory, which Eddie, I'm sure you're aware of. But for those of our listeners that aren't familiar with it, the theory discusses the requirement for a leader to always carefully balance the needs of the task, the team, and the individual. Now, you've been really honest about perhaps not getting this balance right in your younger days, focusing too much on the task and neglecting the individual. Would you mind telling us about this that experience and expand on how you felt you got the balance wrong? I think when I first started coaching, I thought I knew everything. And the longer I've coached, the more I, I worked out. I don't know. I don't know much. Um, so the balance of that task has become much more complex. Uh, there's a lot more people involved in the task now. Like, you know, 20 years ago, I had a staff of eight, eight and now I've got a staff of 25 plus uh, consultants and plus other people we need to pay attention to. So all of those people have now input into the final decision. And, you know, the decision-making now has become far more complex than it was, you know, before. And I'm, I'm sure it's the same in, in, in any sort of the military. Yeah, you probably had one or two variables you had to look at. And now you've got maybe 30, 30 to 50 variables you've got to look at. And you need experts in those areas because you can't be an expert in all of those. And then you've got to try to put that all together into one collective decision. Uh, make sure you get everyone on board and then, and then be able to, to implement that decision with haste. There's a real synergy with our world there, Eddie. Our young leaders are having to deal with greater complexity, greater speed and far more information than young commanders ever used to. And one of the functions of a leader is to quickly process this information and make timely decisions. Staying on our young leaders, we are finding that the younger generation coming through the training pipeline are very different to those that have gone before them. They're brighter, they're more tech literate, they're curious, and they really aren't afraid to ask the context of a task, to ask the why. Are you finding any similarities with the younger players that are coming through the England setup? And how have you had to adapt your approach in balancing the task team and individual with the younger generation who arguably need something slightly different to those more senior within the squad yeah no 100 percent spot on um but within that there's i think they call it generation x and generation y so the, the younger guys who are coming through now have a much better control over technology than maybe those guys from their mid 25s to to early 30s now um because I don't think they were taught as well how to use technology and seemed to seem a bit obsessed by it, whereas the younger guys have, have a much better understanding of it. They're much more in tune with their cognitive fitness uh, and, and they are. They're, they're very intelligent, very well-educated, and they are more curious. You've got to give them a strong why as, as to, as to uh, why you're going to change things. Endless potential there. And it probably falls to leaders to harness that raw talent. If I could turn to culture, many of the England players, both past and present, have been really vocal about the culture 
you have helped to create within the English setup, particularly praising your individual leadership approach. You could argue that this is quite similar to the way we lead soldiers. Some players may perhaps need an arm around the shoulder, and others perhaps need a bit more of a firm approach depending on the context. How important is knowing your people and tailoring your approach to that specific individual? Yeah, well, nothing's changed in that in 30 years. Yeah, it's always been about you got to know someone, um, and to do that, you've got to spend some time with them. And that varies for each person. You know, some people need a, a lot of time. Some people need a set agenda. Some people just need a quick conversation in the, in the corridor every day. Um, but it's, it's making sure you find time, give them time. Um, yeah, we had a young coach come in and he was rushing between meetings and he got some feedback very quickly that when he was in, in the meetings with the players, the players felt like he wanted to go. So, you know, it's a really important thing. We're all busy, um, you know, and as we've said, we're getting busier, but you've got to make sure you appropriate, appropriate your time properly, give people proper attention, make sure you listen actively and, and find a way to access it. You know, for every person, there's a, there's a place to, where you can access, whether it be in their hearts, in their minds, whether it be through something else, it might be through some people food, um, you got to you got to get some sort of emotional connection, and I had this again. Bob DeWire, I always remember he said, "You always remember the conversations that touched you emotionally, whether it be in a in a good way or a or a negative way. But they're the conversations that that matter. So you got to find a way to get that emotional connection with people." Yeah, I couldn't agree more. There, communication skills and connecting with your people coming up time and time again. Staying on the importance of connecting with your people, how do you do this, both collectively and individually, with your team when you only come together periodically through the year? How do you continue to lead and mentor individuals remotely? Spend a lot more time doing one-on-one meetings. Um, so I've increased those, uh, particularly during this period. Um, so every two or three weeks now, I'll sit down with the whole squad. And it might only take five 10 minutes with each player to sit down where they are, where they're going, just to make sure we keep that, that connection even a bit tighter than it was before. And then it's making sure that within your staff, you're allocating the proper staff to look after each player. You know, what, what coach can connect with what player and have a, have a really good feel for them. So John Mitchell, you know, our defence coach, he, he mentors the back row and they're almost like a, a pack of wolves, you know, they've got a real, really strong love of each other and he does it in his own, um, in his own way, whereas other coaches do it in different ways and, and there's nothing wrong or right, but you've got to be able to find that little bit of uh, something a bit special there that, to tie people together. That individual approach to leadership is something we absolutely recognise. One of our most famous leaders, Field Marshal Slim, famously quoted, leadership is just plain you. And that plays to, to your last point. You briefly mentioned about the subculture of the back row there. So I'd like to turn to cultural awareness, if I may. As you'd expect, having cultural awareness is really critical for us. Some of our young leaders who are deployed around the world in short-term training teams have to work with foreign militaries who have different beliefs, may even speak different languages. You've been lucky enough to coach all over the world and experience a number of different cultures. What have you learned about leading within different cultures? And how do you adapt your approach depending on that culture? First of all, I think you've got to have a really positive 
outlook that this is the culture and don't go back to your own culture. Don't say we do this in Australia, we do this in Japan. Accept what the culture is. Understand what are the important pillars of the culture. Don't try to fight those, even though they mightn't make any sense. Um, and then find the areas you can manipulate to create the, the environment that you want. But I think the really important thing is, A, to have a positive um, approach to it and, B, understand what's really important and make sure you keep those things important. Your last point there, Eddie, really resonates with us. Being able to identify what's important to that culture is absolutely critical in building relationships and, in turn, trust. Are there any specific examples you could highlight, perhaps from your time in Japan or conversely in South Africa, that highlight the importance of understanding what is important to that culture? Yeah, just quickly with the South Africans, um, they're quite Christian. And being an Australian, we swear quite a lot. And I remember going to one of the first sessions and swearing. One of the players came up and he said, hey, coach, we don't talk like that here. And, and having a player say that immediately just sorted that out. Japan was all about punctuality. Um, so we used to have like 29 Japanese players and about five or six New Zealand players. And we'd have a meeting at five o'clock and the Japanese players had been there 15 minutes beforehand. The New Zealand and Australian players had come in one minute. So they'd sit apart because of that. So we just created two different schedules. Uh, Japanese had five o'clock and the New Zealanders had 4.45 on their schedule. So we just were able to, to make that a non-issue for the team. Um, and, and with the English players, I think what I've, what I've really found, and I probably see it a little bit in the politics here, um, that people don't like to be told. I think they, they very much like English like to be guided. And if you can guide them with the right rationale, they'll follow it 100%. But if you just try to go top heavy, maybe you don't get the right reaction. I suppose this is where self-awareness is so important and the ability to empathise with people of different cultures. Also having humility, recognising that the way you do things may not necessarily be appropriate for that environment. Now, you spoke earlier about the need for individual players to continually improve. And you seem to practice what you preach here as you have a real thirst for knowledge and continuous improvement. I understand you often visit organisations and sporting teams to learn from them. You work with Prep Guardiola and Sir Alex Ferguson, who you mentioned earlier from football, Ed Smith in the England cricket team, Danny Carey from England hockey, and, and the list goes on and on. How important is having a growth mindset and how has exploring avenues outside of rugby improved you as a coach and a leader? Yeah, I think... Well, firstly, that growth mindset, I think it's an action. It's not the way you think. You've got to action. And action is, is going out, being curious, understanding you don't know everything, understanding there's people with, with more information than you. That's, that's a really big thing, I think, because, um, again, the longer I've coached, the more I understand I don't know, um, and that makes me more curious. Yeah, I think I'm 61 now. I was just looking at the Super Bowl the other day. So Bruce Arians wins the Super Bowl at 68. Um, hadn't had a great career, wins it at 68. Fantastic. And I think that shows you can keep growing and keep improving as long as you've got the energy and enthusiasm, as long as you, you, you've got that 
humility to think that there are other people who are smarter than you. Um, and you're always picking up great new ideas. You know, there might be ideas specifically for how to use directly with your team, but they may influence the way you think. Um, yeah, I just had an email from Ed Smith uh, this afternoon about a, a new book he's got, well, not a new book, but a book to read called Zonal Marking, just about how tradition stops teams from progressing to new ideas. And, uh, yeah, the, the more you reach out, the more people will give you back to. That's the other thing. Absolutely. Challenging assumptions and having diversity of thought is essential in any team's development. And your views on curiosity there echo that of the profession head of our army, who spoke on an earlier podcast about the need for leaders at all levels to be professionally curious. If we could stay on the learning theme, it's a fairly accepted hypothesis that in order for a team to grow and learn, it must experience setbacks and failures at some point. The well-known cliche of success as a terrible teacher sort of springs to mind here. How important is failing to individuals and collective learning? What failures have you learned most from? It was not good. <laughs> it's not good, but if you look at it as an opportunity to learn and you really can take the emotion out of it, 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 it is absolutely crucial to the cycle because I, I always see there's a cycle of success that's followed by a cycle of failure. And your ability to get out of that cycle of failure quickly is the important thing. Conversely, when you're in the cycle of success, you, you've got to try to sustain that. And I think I've learned to know probably quicker when, when I'm in one or the other. Like we've had a reasonable cycle of success, but I know we're coming to the end of it and we're trying to transition out, out of that now into the next next cycle that will make us even stronger. But you go through that little wobbly period where things aren't quite right, people aren't quite sure. But, but if you stick to, um, and I know people talk about process, it's probably the right word in this. If you stick to the process of wanting to improve, uh, don't get distracted by emotion, don't get distracted by external noise, then you've got a chance of getting out of it reasonably quickly. It's a really interesting point because there's such fine margins in the sporting world between winning and losing. How do you balance letting the team fail and learn while still maintaining the bottom line, for which you is ultimately winning games and trophies? How comfortable are you with giving the players and management that freedom to fail? Oh, we've never given freedom to fail. We always want to win, um, but we accept that failure is part of it. And I think... Again, if you can create an environment where people don't overreact to failure, they understand that, right, we didn't get things right, uh, but let's get them right now, um, that you you can turn things around far quicker um, than an organisation that that doesn't, doesn't um, see failure for what it is. Because when, whenever you don't win, it's because you haven't done things as well as the opposition. Now, there can be a number of variables for that, um, but your ability to pick out what is the most important variable or two in that situation is, is absolutely vital. And I suppose this is where having a robust learning and after-action review process within your teams is so, so important. Some of our previous work here has highlighted the importance of resilience within high-performing teams, and you touched on this briefly earlier. How important is both individual and collective resilience to success? Yeah, no, no. no resilience is everything, mate. And uh, 
or tenacity, whatever you want to call it. Uh, but you've got to be able to stick at it um, because, you know, in, in all of our jobs, the thing that makes the job is is the grind. You know, we've got some nice, exciting bits, which for us is a game of 80 minutes where, you know, we play a game and even in the situation we've got 8.7 million watching it on the television. So it's fantastic to be part of that. But the, there's a, there's things that you've got to keep doing and keep doing well, which are the basics of the game. And if you can enjoy that grind, that grind of doing the basics well, that'll keep you in the fight for longer longer periods of time. Um, so we, we always just talk about let's keep doing the basic things well and all the other stuff will look after itself. Doing the basics well, stellar advice, no matter what level you're leading at there. If I could stay on resilience, and in particular, individual resilience, the pressures of international sport are, are fairly well documented, and we have seen some really high-profile examples of where it can take its toll on both players and management alike. Jonathan Trott in cricket is a famous example, uh, and equally a bit closer to home for you, Joe Marler. How much of a challenge is maintaining mental health in a high-performing team? And how do you manage it within the England team? I'm not so sure mental health is a major issue for us. Uh, mental welfare is, um, and I tend to to break up those two because when I when when I talk about mental health and I think it's it's more clinical, um, and when we've got that, we need specialists to look after it. Um, but I think the mental welfare of keeping a balance for the players is so important, and the big thing is getting that balance between enjoyment and learning because learning's hard. And, and but they need to have some enjoyment. So, you know, you see teams have had bad runs and they win a couple of games and they start talking, oh, we're playing with a smile on their face. But they're only playing with a smile on their face because they're winning now. Yeah, and that, and that comes from the, the process. But I think getting, getting that balance right between, particularly for young guys now, they need to have a, probably more fun and more enjoyment because their life's more exciting because things are moving so quicker. So you've got to get that right balance. like having meetings now, you know, you have to have a primer for a meeting to, to get the dopamine um, that you want so they're in a good learning situation. You have to have every every medium that's ever been built to make sure you ensure that everyone can learn. And all those things are, yeah, you know, I'm making a bit of fun of it, but it's, but it's right. It's the right thing to do now and you have to do it and it's really important. Um, and that's how you keep the the players from not not getting bored, and and because when they get bored is when you you get resilience problems, resilience problems, or when they feel like things are too hard. So you got to keep freshening things up, um, put a bit of tomato sauce on it one day, a bit of soy sauce the next. Keep things fresh, but keep them working hard. It's really interesting, and I think breaking the two out as you have done there and emphasising the importance of mental welfare is really, really helpful. One could possibly argue that the symbiotic relationship between the two means that leaders must focus on their people's mental welfare, which in turn will underpin mental health. I'd like to turn to some of your less orthodox methods of coaching, if I may. Uh, We as an organisation try and build what we call a readiness mindset and, and build resilience through deliberate training and specific readiness exercises. I understand you take a quite a similar approach by taking players out of their comfort zone with similar sort of tests and initiatives. For example, I've heard of you deliberately making the team bus late, not telling anyone and seeing how the team and management respond to that crisis. 
How important is it for leaders to train resilience and readiness? And what else do you do to build resilience within the England team? Yeah, well, we've got a duty to prepare them for the hardest moments of the game. Not the easiest moments of the game, the hardest moments of the game. That's our our responsibility. So to do that, it's either it's got to be either physically exacting, uh, skill exacting, emotionally exacting, tactically exacting. There's got to be something that that raises a bar for them. Um, so we'll do a, a variety of things. We'll tell them what's that training, uh, and follow it a hundred percent. We'll tell them not what we'll, we won't tell them what's the training, and they've just got to do it. Uh, we'll try to change the order of training, change the order of days, mix up transport, mix up meetings, uh, just keep it fresh and variable. But again, there's that fine balance between having chaos and and uncertainty and also having certainty so again the observation of your team's the key there what what do they need at that time are they getting too comfortable if they're getting too comfortable then you need to throw in a bit of chaos as the saying goes eddie it's all about being comfortable in chaos and that absolutely resonates with us here now eddie you mentioned there about preparing individuals for the hardest bits of the game and arguably decision making and problem solving are really at the very heart of that now, I've heard you speak before about wanting your players to be problem solvers, to think for themselves and to get to the stage where you and the other coaches can just put your feet up and leave the rest down to the players to execute. Now, this has real synergy with the British Army's command philosophy of mission command, which I know you're really versed in. For those of our listeners that aren't, it's all about centralised intent with decentralised execution, empowering subordinates to make decisions, thus creating an agile and flexible force and fundamentally generating tempo. Now, why is this so important to high-performance teams and how do you instill this within your players? It's a great question. It's just the way it is now. You know, the game of rugby, I'll take the simplest example. So when I played 30 years ago, eight forwards went to every ruck. Now we want one or two, depending on what the, the, the situation demands. So the, the range of decision makers the, play, the players have to make has increased probably 20-fold over the last period of time. So we can't be making those decisions for them. They've got to make those decisions. So just like you said, we, we try to create a tactical framework for them to play and then they've got to make all the decisions. So we give them the what, they've got to do the how, and therefore all our training is about creating how they do it, how they're going to work it out. You know, so I heard Arsene Wenger talk about, you know, he can't coach his, or he couldn't coach his Arsenal players to cope with five million different situations in a game. So you're just trying to give them uh, policies, procedures, processes that they can follow, and then they've ultimately got to make the decision. We couldn't agree more. And it really highlights the importance of delegation, empowerment and trust. Now, I know we're almost out of time, Eddie, so a final question, if I may. Linked to your last comments and decentralised execution, we try and engender a challenge culture within our teams, which, as you can imagine, in a hierarchical organisation that also has rank as a barrier, can be really difficult. How important is it to create a challenge culture within a team? And equally, is there utility in having an element of constructive insubordination, or what some authors have called intelligent disobedience? I love that term, intelligent disobedience. Uh, look, it's vital that people have got the the courage to speak up 
but I think with with it's 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 interesting. We haven't found the right solution yet, and we're still searching for it. You know, we still find that players will do it retrospectively, where we want them to do it. It's got to be in the moment. You know, in the moment conversation where where it needs to be discussed. We're very good at doing it retrospectively, so we're still searching for solutions there. So. I might have to come to your uh, leadership courses to find out a bit more. It's, I think it's one of the most difficult things, but I think the more you can create an environment where people are appreciated for doing that, then, then you've got a chance of that happening. Absolutely. And it comes up time and time again, in not only our podcast, but in, in our wider work, the importance of creating a positive culture and looking after your people. And your comments there have real synergy with Google's findings from Project Aristotle that highlights the importance of psychological safety in high-performing teams. We are out of time there, but before I let you go, we do have time for our customary quickfire questions. So here we go. Best leader you have ever worked for? Uh, best leader was uh, a 32-year-old music teacher called Rita Finn. She was, uh, when I became assistant principal, I was, I was 32, she was the principal. She was incredible, mate. I've never seen such an organised, hardworking person. And some of the habits I learned from her there, I still still follow today. Great to hear. She sounds like a brilliant role model. Most inspirational leader from history. Yeah, that's a that's an ir- interesting one. A uh, bloke I really enjoyed in Australia was Bob Hawke. Uh, and I was from a liberal family, um, but he was sort of a rogue Labor guy, hard drinking, but really had a positive effect on Australia. I think he made Australians proud of themselves. That certainly highlights the importance of looking at leaders that aren't necessarily like you or share the same experiences. Most enjoyable leadership position you have held? Uh, It's always the one you're in, mate. Um, There's never a better one than the one you're in. I'm sure all the England players will be delighted to hear that. Most valuable leadership lesson you have learned? Uh, From my father. Uh, he used to, he lived in Japan for a while and he used to say to me, you kuri, which means take it slowly. And I think that's so true. Whenever you've got an important decision or you've got something important to do, take your time, take the appropriate amount of time, make the right decision. More haste, less speed. Brilliant advice from Mr. Jones Sr. there. With hindsight, what would you tell a young Eddie Jones starting out as a young coach at Randwick Rugby Club about leadership? Before you take a big job, make sure you're mature enough to do it. Like I got the Australian job when I was, let me see, uh, 41. And I was, coaching-wise, I was okay, but emotionally I didn't have the maturity to handle such a big job. And then I was lucky enough to get the Japan job when I was 52. And I got offered that job when I was 36. And, again, I was so disappointed when I missed out but at 53, I was mature enough to handle it. And you see now in a lot of the lot of the big jobs, you need that maturity. Now, for some people, they might be mature enough at 25. So it's not a it's not an age thing, it's a maturity thing. Um, so be, make sure you're mature enough for the job you're being offered. Great to hear. And finally, what is your biggest leadership challenge in the future? The biggest leadership challenge is always to keep moving, uh, to never think you're okay. You've always got to continually mine for conflicts and it's tiring, mate, uh, always thinking there's problems. Um, 
But that's that's the key. Always always mining for conflicts and finding the right conflict. Great advice there. Keep moving, keep learning, and with a bit of luck, keep winning. Eddie, it's been a privilege to have you on the show. Best of luck with the rest of the Six Nations, and thank you for your time today. My pleasure, mate. Thank you. All the best. I really hope you enjoyed listening to Eddie there. As one would expect, an honest and candid insight into his leadership philosophy. I was really struck by the importance he places on honesty and how it is essential in building trust within high-performance teams. Leaders having those difficult conversations when you might not necessarily feel comfortable doing so is absolutely essential to developing your people and achieving the task. Equally, finding ways to connect to your people. We're all different and we all respond in different ways to situations. As leaders, we must know our people and recognize how we can connect with them on a personal level. As Eddie rightly points out, this aspect of leadership hasn't changed. It is merely the context we're operating in that has. His honesty and candor on not effectively balancing the task, team and individual as a young coach was really refreshing to hear. Openly admitting he was too focused on results is something we can all learn from. Although achieving the task is essential, achieving it through the degradation of the individual or team can cause long-term damage. This is something leaders at all levels can learn from. There will always be some degree of tension between the three and a leader's role is to address this tension, ensuring the three remain balanced. I was also really pleased to hear Eddie highlight the importance of having a growth mindset and viewing it as an action as opposed to just a thought. Being humble enough to recognise that regardless of rank, position or experience, that you don't know everything and that there is always an opportunity to learn from other people. Expanding our horizons outside of our usual circles, being professionally curious and always searching for alternative ways of doing things brings diverse perspectives and opinions that if harnessed correctly can improve a team's performance. His views on losing were also fascinating. In the elite sporting world, as with the military, losing has serious ramifications and listening to him talk about failure as an opportunity has real synergy with the British Army's latest recruiting campaign of fail learn, win. Embracing and reframing failure at both the individual and collective level is something everyone should embrace. We should not be afraid of it. And although the army has come a long way in this regard, we still have room for improvement within our culture. He also drew out a fascinating point regarding the modern game of rugby. He highlighted that it was more complex and that his players have to deal with more information and more variables. This has real synergy with the contemporary operating environment the British Army may operate in. Young leaders have to deal with more information, more uncertainty and in more chaos. He spoke of providing a framework for his players to use, but ultimately to empower them to make decisions as they are the ones dealing with the situation on the pitch. This has total synergy with the British Army's command philosophy of mission command and it's reassuring to see that empowering young leaders to make decisions is at the very heart of high performance. And finally, Eddie's views on mental welfare were really refreshing to hear. Breaking it out from mental health and emphasising the importance of cognitive health. Keeping your people fresh, engaged and energised is critical and it has real parallels with the British Army's mental resilience training OBSMART provides us. As Eddie says, they have a duty to prepare their people for the most challenging moments of the game. And in the British Army's case, That duty is preparing our people for the most challenging moments on operations, both physically and mentally.
If you like what you heard today, please do subscribe to our podcast. Visit our website, Centre for Army Leadership, and follow us on our social media platforms, Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn.